John 11, verses 1 through 16. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go, so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples had said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so we may die with him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we count it such a treasure, such a delight to gather corporately for the study of your word, for praising you, for singing songs, for spending time in prayer, for giving. Lord, this is a marvelous privilege that we've been afforded and I Pray that as over these next few moments as we study Your Word together, that You would give us an attentiveness to it. That our ears and our eyes would be open. That our hearts would be made soft. That You would take Your Word and plant it deep in our souls. We thank You, Lord, for the way in which You accompany the preaching of Your Word. And I pray that that would be the case this day. You would use it to change all of us. For Your glory and for Your kingdom's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we return to John this morning after some time away from this gospel in our Harmony of the Gospels, working through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life and ministry of Jesus. And here in John 11, we find the last of seven signs that John records of Jesus' unique power and authority. It's climactic as it does further demonstrate the unique humanity and the unique deity of Jesus Christ. What we should be confronted with as we've been going through this Gospel Harmony is that there is no one else like Jesus. He is completely distinctive. Already, John has presented Jesus as the following. First of all, as powerful over events. We read in John 2 that He's the one that turned water into wine. Secondly, we saw that Jesus is powerful over sickness. He's the one who healed the Capernaum official's son in John 4. He's also powerful over disability and sin. He was the one who could not only heal the lame, but then pronounce that lame person's sins forgiven. Again, the crowd of onlookers go, who can forgive sins but God alone? Thus again, pointing to the deity of Christ. Fourth, we saw that Jesus is powerful over provision. As he's able to take the meager resources of a few loaves and some fish and feed Such a huge, vast multitude, 5,000 being the number of men, but if we added children and and women, a number much greater than that. We also saw Jesus powerful over nature, as He is the one who can walk on water in John 6. And then we saw that Jesus did something that no one has ever seen done before, and that is healing a man born blind. Jesus shows His power over blindness, able to grant sight to even one who is born blind in John chapter 9. So when Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves for the 5,000, he illustrated the fact that indeed Jesus was the bread of life. 
It is Jesus who ultimately truly sustains us. When he healed the man born blind, he demonstrated himself to be the light of the world. It's Jesus who gives us eyes to see. And now when Jesus comes here to this text and raises Lazarus from the grave, he shows that he is the resurrection and the life. It is Jesus that brings the dead to life. You see, each one of these miracles in Jesus' life further functioned as signs pointing to a further reality. His miracles were not just displays of His power and displays of His compassion, but they served as signs pointing men to their own need and directing us to our only hope for help, and that is Jesus Himself. You see, we all need Jesus to turn our sorrow into rejoicing. We need Him to turn our sickness into health, our disability to ability, our sin to forgiveness, our needs to supply, our disaster to rescue, our blindness to sight our death to life. And time and time again, we encounter this very thing flowing from Jesus. Jesus is our joy. He is our health. He is our forgiveness. He is our provision. He is our deliverer. He is our light. He is our life. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. How glorious that we can call Jesus our friend. That we can call him our friend. We can be so thankful that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Because that description fits all of us. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Yet there are moments when even the most loyal follower of Christ may wonder why he or she is experiencing the things that he or she is. It reminds me of John the Baptist whom Jesus declared was among those born among women, there's none greater than him. John the Baptist rightly recognized that Jesus, who Jesus was. Remember, not even, starting even from the womb, right? He even leaps inside of his mother's womb when Mary comes into the room with Jesus inside of hers. The same one would identify Jesus later on when he was approached in the wilderness. He would identify Jesus as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. John would rightly understand that he was not worthy to even untie the thong of Jesus' sandal. Remember, this is the one who said, I shouldn't be baptizing you, but you me. This is the same one who was told when his disciples came to him frantic, saying, John, 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 everyone's going out to Jesus instead of you. And John the Baptist responds by saying, of course, I must decrease and he must increase. You see, John the Baptist who understood his place. He found his joy in the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices in the joy of the bridegroom. He gladly delighted himself in Jesus. But it is the same exact man who after being in prison for standing for the truth of God's Word, while languishing in prison, he began to question what Jesus was doing to such an extent that he would send his own disciples to inquire of Jesus if Jesus was indeed the one that they were waiting for or if there was another one coming after him. Here's the question. Why did John begin to question this? I mean, if anybody got it, it is John. He knew who Jesus was. Why is he even questioning this at all? From where did this doubt arise? It becomes quite evident it was experienced in the time between promise and fulfillment. Between the time of promise and fulfillment. You see, John's faith started to question the weight as he considered his own circumstances and he wondered why the glorious end time fulfillment had not yet come to pass. John knew where things were going, but he was wondering, why aren't we there yet? 
Why the wait? Why the delay? He was struggling through the time of delay. And I can guarantee you that if John the Baptist struggled with this, we do too. Have you ever had trouble in the time between promise and fulfillment? Anyone had a hard time being patient? Anyone ever had a hard time waiting in times of seeming delay? We who have been granted adoption to God's family by His grace are not shielded from the struggle of trusting God through the trials of this life. We can be sure that God is going to wrap everything up, and we know that, yet the struggle in the meantime can sometimes cause us the question, what's taking you so long, Lord? Why so long? Why not just take care of these problems? Why not do away with sin? Jesus, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Why not now? Why the wait? Why the delay? Why are things going the way they are? In a sermon entitled, Why the Wait? I'd like to present an apologetic for the delay that we experience in seeing God's ultimate promises fulfilled. And what I want to do is, first of all, consider the hasty conclusions that are often drawn from the experience of waiting upon God to provide rescue from our situations, from our circumstances. It is very common for us to jump to some conclusions as to why this happens. What's going on? And I want to debunk those. I want to talk about those. Give us some, some aid in those times that we wouldn't allow those to be the thoughts that we settle in on. And after we deconstruct those hasty conclusions, I then want to replace them with some biblical explanations. God does indeed have a purpose for the delay that we experience between our present hardships, trials, difficulties, and sufferings, and the glory that is yet to be revealed. It is not accidental. God has a purpose for the waiting time. He has a purpose for what feels to us sometimes to be excruciating delay. God has a purpose for that. So first, let's demolish point number one, some hasty conclusions drawn from divine delay. Those moments when we think that God is just waiting and what is going on. Some hasty conclusions that come to our mind. I want to demolish three of them. First is this. Delay does not mean God has lost track of time. Delay does not mean that God has lost track of time. You'll see a common theme through all the hasty conclusions I'm going to mention this morning. And they all arise from attributing human failures to God. And this is all too often our problem when thinking about God, is we take our experience and place it upon the Lord. We think human thoughts about God rather than allowing God to provide our minds with thoughts about Him. So we need to correct these errors by refreshing our theology proper. Theology proper, a term we use in systematic theology to talk about God Himself, a discussion of His perfections, of His attributes. Thinking rightly about God is so very, very important. So we begin with the consideration of God's own relationship to time. You see, time is God's creation, and therefore it's something that exists as a result of His purpose. God is the one who always is. Time came into being by God's creative decree. Burkhoff explains, Eternity is that perfection of God whereby He is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of His existence in one indivisible present. It's always fun reading definitions from theologians on terms like eternity or uh, infinity, because we necessarily find ourselves having to just use negation to get there, right? So God's eternity means not limited by time, not limited by a succession of moments. We say the eternal present. So when we're defining eternity, we use the term again because we, we don't have words to describe it because there's an element in which this goes beyond our comprehension. But when God created the universe, He also created time. Don't miss this, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, with His creative act, He also brings into being time. Therefore, God can be properly said to exist above time. He is not subject to time. Time is subject to God. Time is a tool in God's toolbox. 
God cannot lose track of time. He created it. He sustains it. God uses time for His purposes. Time is something we always wish we had more of. But God has precisely the time that He wants. Not a second more, not a second less. When He chooses to act in time, God is always on time. Whenever He acts in time, He always acts on time. And let me ask the question this way. Who's in a position to judge otherwise? Who's in a position to say, God, you did not time that out well? Who's in a position to judge that? No one is. Reminds me of Gandalf's famous words in The Fellowship of the Ring, where he tells Frodo Baggins, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Now, that statement is all the more true in talking about God. God is never late. He is always on time. He arrives precisely when he wants to. Everything he does is on time, for time proceeds in accordance with God's will. This is really good for us to let sink into our minds. Is what appear to us to be unnecessary delays are exactly the way God wants it to be. And there's something very refreshing to the soul to take that in deep and to digest that, to mull over that, and to recognize that God has a purpose for the delays. He has a purpose for the waiting. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Look that phrase. Fullness of time. At the right time, God sent His Son. Acts 17, 30 and 31 talks about both past, present, and future in the The gist of the passage is to say that all of these are in God's hand. Everything is happening in accordance with His plan. He's fixed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. So, something that's happened in the past, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is being utilized to fuel our consideration of the future and the present. In the present, consider the past as we look forward to the day coming in which God will come to judge the world. You see, past, present, and future all in God's hands. Everything is happening according to His timetable. Time is His servant. You see, the Scriptures and reason prevent us from concluding that while we wait on the fulfillment of God's promises that He has lost track of time, time exists by nothing less than God's sovereign decree. And just because... We might not see the purpose for the wait. doesn't mean God does not have a purpose for the wait. It would be completely foolish to deem something purposeless or fruitless just because we, as finite creatures, can't understand the infinite. Can't understand God's marvelous purposes coming to pass. I'm sure we've experienced this. I'm sure you have. Oftentimes, it's not until we get a few more years down the road and we look back and we go, oh, (laughs) wow, that was completely fantastic. I'm so glad things went the way they did. And then I dare say that there are some things in our life that we'll go through the entirety of our life and die and still not get until then, still not understand why did this happen the way it did. But just because you can't figure that out doesn't mean that there isn't a purpose in God's mind about it. And I think the Scriptures give us some indications of things that would be good for us to meditate on. We'll get to those in just a few moments. J.C. Rao explained it this way. We shall see the last day that all was well done. Even the delays, the long intervals which puzzle us in God's dealings, they're all wisely ordered and they're working for good. Like children, we are poor judges of half-finished work. Have you ever had a child come in while you're maybe in the middle of some sort of project and then be completely scratching their heads going, what's going on here? Have you ever had an adult come in while you're in the middle of a project and said, what on earth are you doing here? But then much later on, we can see the beautiful thing that has happened. A lot of times things get more ugly before they get more beautiful. Things get messy before they get ordered. We've experienced that in this life. Let's not be... 
childish in our consideration of present trials and struggles. Just because you can't sort out all the details now doesn't mean that God's not orchestrating a beautiful thing with those events. How many times have you had a hard time waiting for something, but with the passing of time you were granted new perspective on the matter, which either gave you a better appreciation for the thing that you were waiting for, or perhaps even just changed your mind entirely about what you really want, or what you're really going after, or what your plan of action is going to be? You see, God doesn't have those types of moments. He knows everything perfectly from beginning to end. He doesn't have these aha moments like, oh, I never thought about that before. We do. We do lose track of time, don't we? But God never does. How does this text speak to this reality? Look at verses 9 and 10. I'm jumping around a little bit in the text here this morning. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus speaks of 12 hours being in a day. He says that if a person walks during that time, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. However, if a person walks in the night, stumbling is a foregone conclusion because the light is not in him. Jesus is acquainted with the time. He knows the time. He's working in accordance with the time allotted him by his Father in heaven. His actions are calm. His actions are collected. Jesus is not frantic. He's not being tossed to and fro. He's acting in accordance with God the Father's timetable. And this is such an interesting contrast because you have Mary and Martha that are concerned that Jesus doesn't arrive to them earlier than he does. And meanwhile, remember, Jesus, after hearing this news, waits two more days where he is. We'll talk some more about that. Meanwhile, when he does tell his disciples, yeah, we're going to go to Judea, what do the disciples say? What are you talking about? They just tried to stone you. They just tried to kill you back there. Disciples don't want to go at all. Mary and Martha want him to go faster. He's not pleasing any of those groups. Meanwhile, Jesus, cool, calm, collected. He's not rushed. Nor is he worried. Jesus knew that no precautionary measure which the disciples had to cook up could lengthen his time on earth, nor could any dastardly plot by the Pharisees shorten his time on earth. Delay does not mean that God has lost track of time. What's the second thing that doesn't mean? Delay does not mean that God is unable to help you. It does not mean that God is unable to help you. Delay in our actions sometimes is this very thing. It's a result of inability. We may be unable to help someone in need because we lack money. Maybe we lack skill or knowledge. Maybe we lack time. And we deal with these creaturely limitations every moment of our lives. We can only be in one place at one time. A space limitation. We can only have so much money. That's a resource limitation. And we can only handle one thing at a time. Kind of like your multitasking limitation. Let's think quickly first about space limitations. Well, God's omnipresence means that He's present everywhere. He's not bound by locational finiteness. God is immense. He is not limited in regards to space. All finite objects have a location. They are somewhere. And where they are necessarily prevents them from being somewhere else. If you are here, you are not in your bed at home sleeping right now, right? Your location, your finiteness means that if you are here, you are not somewhere else. But God is without spatial dimensions. He is spirit. He is not spread out all over the universe. He is wholly present everywhere. That's what we mean by omnipresent. He is wholly present everywhere. He's not just distributed. He is wholly present in all of his perfections everywhere. Erickson, greatness is this. The greatness of finite objects is measured by how much space they occupy. Right? When we think of something, how great something is, we think, how big is it? Wow, that's a great thing. It's a very, very big thing. With God, however, the question of awareness or location is not applicable. God is the one who brought space into being. He was before there was space. God is without dimension. He is omnipresent. Now note, we come against this limitation quickly in trying to provide aid to someone. Does God? No. He's present everywhere. Knowing the omnipresence of God it provides us with assurance. I mean, we can never be physically or geographically beyond God's help. 
He's present no matter our circumstances, no matter if we're near or far from home, whether we're here or on the other side of the globe, whether we're an astronaut in space, whether we find ourselves in prison, whether we find ourselves thrown into a den of lions or cast into a fiery furnace or lost in a desert or in the midst of a storm. God is not limited by space. Another thing God is not limited by is resources. God doesn't suffer from resource limitations. I love this. There's some great scriptures on this. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. God's giving a rebuke to Israel here. I'm just going to pick up on the words he says here. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. And listen to this. Love this. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. You see, need is a creaturely word. It does not apply to God. God has no needs. We are all about need. We are needy things. God has no needs. God existed before time began. Arthur, Arthur Pink explains, There was nothing, no one, but God. And that, not for a day or a year or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. And then we have like Job 41.11. God owns everything. Who has given to me that I should repay Him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Acts 17.25. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You see, God has the power to do all His good pleasure. He has the power to accomplish all that He desires to do. He suffers from no lack of resources. Well, what about that last one, multitasking? What about this multitasking limitation? You know, our finite brains are such that we can only give attention to one thing at a time. Even fantastic, great multitaskers, if you sit down and think about it, are just really skilled at moving from one focus to another and handling them in a certain priority or within a certain time limit. But you're still just shifting focus from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. But God can and does handle all things simultaneously with complete focus on each detail. God's omniscience means that He has perfect knowledge over all events everywhere and not only knows exactly what to do in each situation, but due to His omnipotence, lacks no power to accomplish what He desires in every single situation. You see, it's never been a question of whether or not God can do something that is consistent with His perfections, but if God will do something, because God is free to perfectly do all His own sovereign pleasure. Are you starting to get a taste? This is our God. He's great and grand and marvelous. He's not limited like we are. And one of the things that really can cause us huge troubles in our spiritual life is the thinking small thoughts about our great God. He is great and magnificent and awesome. And we need to stop putting creaturely limitations upon the infinite God. How does this present text speak to this reality? Well, Jesus is completely aware of Lazarus' condition on a moment-to-moment basis. He knew that the sickness that Lazarus was suffering would lead to his death, but not end in his death. Lazarus would not remain in the grave. He knew this not by some messenger bringing word, but due to the fact that he was God. He knew what otherwise couldn't be known. We'll find this out see a little bit later when Jesus says to the disciples, he's dead. There wasn't another messenger that came to Jesus. He is aware of the status of Lazarus' life. And as we'll see more next week, Jesus could do what otherwise couldn't be done, even raising the dead back to life. It's not a matter of a lack of power. And while Jesus as incarnate God in the flesh voluntarily took on creaturely limitations, even in this, He did not fully or finally abdicate His divine prerogatives. Jesus had authority to perform healing even at a distance. We've seen him do it in the past, even if he doesn't choose to on this occasion for another reason, for a purpose that he's yet to reveal. 
A third hasty conclusion for us to demolish. Delay does not mean God has forgotten you or does not care about you. You see how these go. And one's like, well, God's just you know, off doing something else. He's lost track of time. Or, you know, God just doesn't have the ability to help. You know, his hands are tied. This one is, God has ability. He knows what's going on. He just doesn't care. He's just aloof. He's forgotten about you. You're just a little worm. He doesn't care. There are people that will put this forward. And, and sometimes if it's not just a philosophical thing, they'll, they'll, they'll experience those feelings or the thoughts while they're in the midst of some difficulty. You see, while the previous question revolves around the power and knowledge of God, it's this question that strikes at the love and compassion and mercy and grace of God. Trials and times of waiting cause some people to doubt the goodness of God. Is God good? If God was good, how could this be going on? Those questions arise. These questions we get into theodicy questions. Some may ask, Does God just not want to be troubled or inconvenienced by me? Well, I think that there's at least a twofold antidote to this poisonous line of thinking. Give you two antidotes. When you start feeling or thinking that way, I've got two antidotes for you. The first is this meditate upon God's Word. If you question whether or not God loves you or cares about you, meditate on God's Word. Here's a quick sampling. You all know this one. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How about this one? Ephesians 2, 4-7 But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.6-8 For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see a common theme through all those verses? How does God demonstrate His love to us? How is that most notably seen? And there's, there's tons of ways in which His blessings are poured out. But what is the thing that should always be present in our minds as Christians? It's that He gave us His Son. That His Son came to earth and died on the cross was a propitiation. He was a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. A substitute in behalf of sinners who would call out to Him. When you start to question the love of God, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. We know that it is here that God has demonstrated the marvelous, overflowing love, grace, and mercy that He has for vile and wretched sinners. That's part one of the antidote. A second antidote to these kinds of thoughts, doubting of the goodness of God, I just call you to reflect upon God's previous providences. Reflect upon what God has done with you over the years of your life. Sometimes the best medicine is to consider the general and special mercies and blessings of God. We spend far too little time thanking God for His past provisions and His incredible providences. How did David, when he considered Goliath, go into that fight? Remember the explanation he gives? Well, if God helped me with the lion and the bear then he can help me with this ungodly Philistine. I have found so much solace in this in my own life. My life, uh, sometimes even this church and school, we've been through rocky times, been tough moments. But a consideration of how the Lord has seen us through those times fuels faith and trust in Him 
for our daily bread today. He has seen us this far. It's like putting up an Ebenezer stone. He's seen us this far. He's going to see us the rest of the way. And there's something that is very uh, helpful to us in these moments to remember and give thanks to God. I think the reason why there's instruction given is when we bring our petitions and requests before the Lord, that we do so with thanksgiving. Why? Because in the contemplation of thankfulness for what God has done, it fuels faith with our petitions unto the Lord. You've seen us through these things. We trust You, Father. We know You've got this under control. We're laying it at Your feet. Because we know that if we're doing this thing in accordance with God's will, in God's way, for God's glory, then we know that we'll never lack God's supply. Right? God will supply that which is in accordance with His will, done in His way, for His glory. We know that. So we can trust Him. How does this present text speak to this reality? Well, we're told that Martha and Mary knew that Jesus loved their brother. Verse 3, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They didn't even say Lazarus. He whom you love is sick. We're told in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I found that order interesting too, by the way. We think of Martha, we think of Mary. We're brought back to the story. Remember it? Martha, working hard, serving Jesus. There's Mary, working hard, sitting at Jesus' feet. Remember Martha? I think when I preached that text, I told you guys, I don't think there's any problem until Martha starts having her little pity party. Why isn't my sister doing this? I mean, there's nothing wrong with serving Jesus and making provisions for Him. But what is wrong is when Martha starts nitpicking at Mary and what Mary's doing. At that point, Jesus has a rebuke for Martha and tells Martha that Mary has chosen the necessary thing. It's one thing necessary. The main thing we can be engaged in, but one thing necessary. is how dare you try to take this away from your sister. But sometimes people walk away from that and don't recognize that, that in that statement, Jesus is also loving Martha. He's instructing her. He's disciplining her. He's giving her a new direction. And what do we find in this passage? Martha's name is mentioned. Jesus loved Martha and her sister. Who's that? Mary. And loved Mary and her brother, Lazarus. I, I think it's also wonderful. Just This is completely just extra. This is gravy here. I think it's also cool how God loves different people, different personalities. And we need to start to appreciate that with one another. Hopefully we already do. But let's continue to appreciate one another and our differences. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He loves his children and all their distinctive personalities. Now, contrary to the teaching of some, though, so what's emphasized there? Jesus loves these three people. Okay? He loves them. Contrary to the teaching of some, sickness and death may be God's will for his people. And sickness and death in God's people is not contrary to God loving his people. People would say that if he loves you, then that wouldn't happen to you. But that's not at all the case. See Job 1 and 2 for a good place to consider God's love for His people and the trials and suffering they undergo. You see, even the chosen friends of Christ sicken and die. We're not exempt from the consequences of sin. It's appointed for men to die once. In fact, trials and illnesses are often sent for the good of our souls. How many of you can testify to that? That God has used trials and sicknesses and difficulties and hardships in order to draw your affections away from this world and bring them and draw them unto Himself. Oftentimes what trials and sicknesses and hardships and difficulties do is they send us to our Bibles, they send us to, to our knees, they send us to fellowship with other Christians. When you start to think about that, and about how natural, I mean, if you're a believer, it does that. It just does. And if, that, if you think about that reality, then I think that should give you a different perspective on just how tough trials are. It's also obvious from the events in this text that Jesus' timing was not a result of not wanting to be inconvenienced. Remember when he says, we're going to actually go... And visit Bethany. The disciples are saying, why are we going back there? They tried to kill you there. He's like, no, we're going to go. Now again, remember, this is Jesus. 
Remember with the centurion servant? The centurion says, you don't even have to come to my place. Just say the word and it'll be done. Jesus comments, such faith isn't even found in Israel. He could have just healed Lazarus. He could have rose him from the dead at distance. But instead, Jesus travels to the very place. It's nothing to do with not wanting to be inconvenienced. This is notable. Jesus could have healed Lazarus at a distance. But instead, we see the Prince of Life traveling to the scene of death. All right. Demolish some hasty conclusions. Secondly, I want to put forward three biblical explanations for divine delay. Three biblical explanations for divine delay. Okay. Delay doesn't come from those things, but what does it come from? I mean, what is God doing with it? Well, first of all, delay develops our faith. Here's the question. If there was no waiting, where would faith be? If there was no waiting, where would faith be? If there was no time between when God promises something and when God brings it to pass, where would faith be? Think about that. Where would it be? If He promised and immediately God gave it, where would faith be? Where would be the the trusting, the calm assurance, the trusting that God is going to bring to pass what He said? If there is no time between promise and fulfillment, how would we grow strong in trusting God? Verse 3. The sister sent word to Jesus. Lord, behold, He whom you love is sick. Notice the quiet trust in those words. I love these words. The sisters aren't telling Jesus, come right now. They're also not saying, you should do this, or you should do that. They just bring the petition before Jesus. Jesus, he whom you love is sick. It's an acknowledgement in their minds that since Jesus loves Lazarus, he's going to do whatever he thinks is right. And they can trust that. Jesus, he whom you love is sick. They present their petition. They entrust it to Jesus. But here's the time for their faith to mature. But were we told, having heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus remained two days later. Seems so strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus, if you loved Lazarus, wouldn't you run to him right then? You just, we were just told, he whom you love is sick. They were told, so as a result, Jesus stayed two days later. And they were told in the next verse, Jesus loved them. You love them, you love them, you stay away two more days? How does it fit? I also wonder what it would have been like for Mary and Martha to receive news back from the messenger that Jesus talked to and said, hey, this condition, it's not going to end in death. I'm really curious. I wish I could be there. I wish we could, I wish we had this really ironed out and tacked down. We don't. We know that when Jesus arrives, that Lazarus' body's been in the tomb for four days, so it's been a little while. Don't know exactly how far it took, how long it took him to travel, and how long it took the messenger to get back. It's a little bit up in the air, but I wonder when the messenger came back to Mary and Martha and told them, Jesus said this, it's not going to end in death. I wonder if Lazarus was still alive or not. I wonder if that message came to them while Lazarus is still on his deathbed and Jesus said, it's not going to end in death. And then they watch him die. Or, he's already dead. Come back, it's not going to end in death. He's already dead. What do you mean? You see, Jesus' delay and Jesus' words provide an opportunity for the faith of those around him to be developed. Now the question is, will they trust what Jesus' words, will they trust in Jesus' words or not? How could it be that this would not end in death? This sort of moment reminds me of Abraham who were told by faith when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Abraham had been given that promise from God. But now God is telling him, Go sacrifice your son. So my descendants are going to come through Isaac, but now you're telling me to go up on this mountain and sacrifice him. 
love how the writer of Hebrews continues in verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham may not have understood why God was doing what he was, but he obeyed and trusted God. He had faith in God's ways. He knew that God's ways were right and good, even if he couldn't figure it out. Even if it seemed like it contradicted human understanding. The sisters think it's too late for Lazarus, but Jesus is about to put on display the supremacy of his power. Not even the grave could stop Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? that in Jesus' presence, even death itself must submit. Even death itself must submit in Jesus' presence. Jesus says in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. That there, believe, faith. I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes, that you may believe. I love these words from Jesus on several levels. First of all, that Jesus is glad that he was absent from the scene of Lazarus' sickness for the sake of his disciples, we discover that Lazarus' sickness has a much further reaching significance than his own life or even his own family's life. God's plan for Lazarus' sickness and death was purposed to establish and mature the faith in others. Note this. A lot of times our problem with trials and sufferings is our... Focus is too narrow. God has a purpose, not just with you and your family, but with people outside of that network. This is a glorious thought. Our life and our death, God can use to bring about the development of faith in others. Now remember, Lazarus is beloved by Jesus Jesus loved his friend Lazarus, yet he rejoiced in his beloved's death. Doesn't that sound so strange to us? He was joyful in this because of the benefit that would be accrued to others as a result of that circumstance. You know what I think of when I think through that? I'm reminded that the world doesn't revolve around me. And man, is that a good medicine to our soul. Sometimes we think everything revolves around us. And here we see Jesus, his beloved friend Lazarus, he can rejoice in the fact that Lazarus was sick and died because of what would accrue to his disciples, to these others. Are we in that place? Are we so enraptured with Jesus that we say, Jesus whether through my life or my death, you be exalted. May I decrease and you increase. Do you know anyone whose illness or sickness or disease or ailment was used deliberately by the Lord as a tool to encourage faith in others? Do you have any friends or family members who have gone through trials or struggles and God has used it on purpose to either awaken faith in someone who is lost, to grant them eyes to see, to grant them repentance and faith in Christ, or to encourage other Christians in their walk with Christ. Now, are you willing for God to use your life in that way? Are you willing to see that there's a bigger picture here in, in mind? The other thought that brings joy to my heart and these words from Jesus is the implication in these words. He says, I'm glad I was not there for your sake. I'm glad that I was not there for your sake. Implied in that statement is the idea that had Jesus been present, Lazarus wouldn't have died. So he's saying, I'm glad I was not there for your sake. It's the same sentiment from Martha. Martha says to Jesus, comes to her, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 21. Mary and Martha are quite convinced that if Jesus had been present, Lazarus wouldn't have died. They were familiar with Jesus' miraculous power. They trusted in his ability to save. They'd seen him heal people. They knew this was no problem for Jesus' power. 
It's as if to say this, that in Jesus' presence, death cannot persist. There'd be no dying that day had Jesus been there. Now remember, this is not the only time that Jesus rose someone from the dead. By the way, this is the, this is the added thing that Mary and Martha are going to experience, as well as his disciples and all those around there. But this is not the only time that Jesus rose someone from the dead. The synagogue, we had these read this morning. The synagogue, I hope you saw the theme there. The synagogue official, Jairus' daughter, we read in Mark 5, had only just died when Jesus comes into that place, holds her by the hand, Talitha Kum, translated, little girl, say to you, get up. And immediately the girl gets up, begins to walk. Immediately everyone there around there was completely astounded. Some people have taken exception with this. That he didn't raise her from the dead. Jesus even says, she's not dead, she's asleep. Again, we get into this discussion about what does Jesus mean when he uses the word asleep. Some people say, if she was just in a coma, Jesus raised her from a coma. Okay, well, let's just grant that for a minute. Let's just hypothetically say that's how it was. Well, let's go to the next example, Luke 7. The widow's son of Nain. We read there that there's a funeral procession going on. There's the coffin. Would have been a funeral pyre. But there he is, he's going out, he's dead. Jesus happens upon it, raises the boy up, returns her, returns him to her, his mother. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe he was still just kind of in a coma or something. Okay, well, look at John 11. Here we got a guy four days in the grave. Women are scared. He stinketh, Lord. He's decomposing. He's rotting. Jesus speaks, Lazarus, come forth. It's good he used Lazarus' name. Otherwise, everyone would have come forth from the grave, right? Jesus would indeed build the faith of his disciples through this event. And the event was conditioned upon Jesus arriving later than the people would have originally desired. Get this, God had something bigger in store. That wait was purposeful. Because God wanted to develop the faith in his people. Something that would form a perfect preface to Jesus' own death and resurrection. More on that in a minute. One thing it does, it grows our faith, develops our faith. Second thing that delay does, it heightens our appreciation. It heightens our appreciation. We learn of God's faithfulness by observing Him make promises and then fulfill them. Make promises, then fulfill them. Make promises, then fulfill them. We learn how to patiently trust God in the time allows for in between the promise and the fulfillment. And it really is true. We experience this as creatures. Our appreciation for something deepens as we struggle through the time waiting for it. Come on. We've got examples like this. When the hurricane came through, electricity's out. How many of you in that moment developed a much deeper appreciation for air conditioning? How many of you developed a much deeper appreciation for electricity, for refrigerators and freezers as we were dumping all of our food? Could it be that some of our lack of appreciation for the freedoms that we have in America are due to forgetting what it was like to live without those freedoms? Let me ask you this way. How often has the Lord worked to provide for our needs but because of the immediacy with which God provided for our needs, we didn't pause to give Him thanks. Think about that for a minute. How many times has God blessed you before you even, even asked for it, and as a result, took it for granted? And now, contemplate those moments where prayer over a long period of time. And now we see God bring that to pass. Consider the appreciation that fits that moment. I wonder if God sometimes permits us to be overwhelmed with trials and difficulties to awaken us to His presence, to awaken us to His provision. Because whether you know it or not, He's providing for all of your needs every single day. But there's a sense in which the delay, sometimes for our creaturely finite minds, it really connects it for us in a bigger way. I think it develops appreciation in us. It makes us yearn for more of Him. In the present case, 
Remember, Jesus didn't just suddenly become powerful once Lazarus died. He always had that power. Lazarus' death just formed the backdrop upon which his power shone. It provided a context in which a deeper appreciation for Jesus' compassion and power could be seen. Could Jesus have healed Lazarus before he died? Absolutely he could have. But because he waited, because of the delay, what has he now done? He's built up the faith of his followers. And I'm sure this, for Mary and Martha, caused them to count the life of their brother all the more precious. Can you imagine? You've just lost your brother. You've just lost your spouse. you just lost a child. I mean, you'd be rejoicing had they been healed of a sickness or illness, I'm sure. But think if Jesus showed up and brought them back to life. Would not appreciation burst forth from you? You see, nothing so helps us to bear patiently the trials of life as an abiding conviction of the perfect wisdom by which everything around us is managed. Ryle says, Let us try to believe not only that all that happens to us is well done, but that it is done in the best manner by the right instrument and at the right time. It's all well done in the best manner by the right instrument at the right time. Jesus' actions here show us the wisdom and goodness of God in thwarting what were their immediate wishes and infinitely giving them something much, much better. Much, much greater. You see, in that moment, in the presence of death, I don't care how wise you are, I don't care how rich you are, I don't care how powerful you are, you are helpless. You can't do a thing about death. Death shows all of our weakness instantly. The richest man on earth, death, he can't control it. He doesn't own it. He's not victorious over it. And here we're confronted with the uniqueness of Christ. In His presence, death must give up its dead. The grave cannot separate Christ from His friends. All of the friends will travel with you up to the point of death. They might be there at your grave site, but they can't bring you out of the grave. Neither life nor death can separate us from the love of Christ. Christ strengthened the faith of the sisters by having them endure the bitterness of death in order to then heighten its subsequent joy when He raised Lazarus from the dead. You see, oftentimes God works just like this. He brings us to the end of ourselves, to the lowest of lows, and then exalts us. There's a reason why stories, great stories, have that kind of moment. I mean, my favorite movies or books are those that bring the hero or the characters to like the lowest of lows, and then everything flips around. And guys, there's no story like the Gospel. It does that on a level that just blows our minds away. Because the third reason for delay is that it displays God's glory. It displays God's glory. The weight we experience only sets the stage for God's glory to be magnificently displayed. Verse 4, Jesus said, The sickness is, is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now on the surface, that statement seems to communicate that Lazarus wouldn't die at all. But we know from the account that Lazarus does die. All seemingly due to Jesus' delaying in traveling to go to see Lazarus. But Jesus' words are not untrue. There is a deeper significance to be discovered. And ultimately what happens here is that God uses the delay to bring glory to Himself because ultimately pain is swallowed up in comfort and death is ultimately swallowed up in life. This is akin to Jesus' words regarding the... Remember when people came to Jesus and asked Him, why was this guy born blind? Was it because he sinned? Was it because his parents sinned? What did Jesus say? It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents. This is why he was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why. His blindness for all of his life was to set up this moment to show the works of God displayed in him. I want to return to the thought that we mentioned earlier. Jesus rejoices in the suffering and death of his friend Lazarus. How can he do that? How can he delay in coming to his friend's rescue? 
But I believe that the answer to that question gets us right to the heart of the gospel. Jesus rejoices in the death of Lazarus, his beloved, because of the benefit that his disciples would receive when Lazarus was raised from the dead. Sound familiar, friends? We learn in the gospel that God the Father was pleased to crush the Son, to pour out His wrath upon Him and put Him to death. How can God the Father rejoice in the suffering of His beloved? Of His beloved Son? How can He delay in coming to His rescue? How could He wait till the third day to bring Him up from the dead? It's because God knows that death would not have the final word. He set the stage for the most glorious display of His power and wisdom and love. Just as Jesus could say, this sickness is not to end in death about Lazarus, so God the Father could say the same regarding His Son Jesus, this crucifixion is not to end in death. Here's the surprise ending to end all surprise endings. God the Father delays in coming to His Son's rescue so that He might rescue a great host of people from their slavery to sin and death. And through raising His Son from the dead, God the Father secured a people for His own possession. And He conquered Satan. And He conquered sin. And He conquered the grave. 1 Corinthians 15. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Lo, in the grave He lay. Jesus, my Savior, waiting the coming day. Jesus, my Lord, vainly they watch His bed. Jesus, my Savior, vainly they seal the dead. Jesus, my Lord, death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, why? Because up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph o'er His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. You see, so often our problem is one of nearsightedness. It's like the very condition I suffer from. You're all fuzzy to me right now. We fail to see the things, things the way that they really are because we don't see how they fit into the big story. But God has provided us with illustrations of how His plan is best in Scripture And He provides us with real instances in history to learn from. So when we're tempted to lose heart in those times of delay, in those times of waiting, we should look to Jesus and be thankful that God delayed in rescuing His Son. Because if He hadn't, there'd be no hope for you or me. If Jesus hadn't taken the wrath of God on Himself for me, there'd be no hope for me. Jesus, The delay that God the Father had towards His Son delivered us, rescued us. And think about the time between your birth and your own conversion. Was it not a display of God's grace that He waited? Aren't you thankful that He was not willing to let you suffer the penalty that you deserve of hell and drew you unto Himself and granted you repentance and faith and drew you to Jesus Christ His Son? As always, all these questions get answered in the Gospel. Now, the passage we read this morning finishes with verse 16. An interesting little end here. Thomas speaks. His behavior can be described as nothing other than loyal despair. Loyal despair. Let us go also so that we may die with him. This is one of those statements that's both good and bad. It's wonderful that Thomas is willing to follow Jesus even unto death, yet Thomas seems to miss the point of Jesus' instruction here. As long as the Father has tasks for Jesus to complete while it is still the day, no threats on his life will be successful. Now, while it's good to be ready to die in service to the Lord, we also need to beware of a pessimistic attitude creeping into our living. It seems that Thomas expected evil and he had a hard time believing good when it occurred. See, Thomas is famously remembered for doubting the resurrection of Jesus in John 20. But instead, may we be those who live as those who have hope. The good news is this, friends, that illness, sickness, every circumstance, all the things that we encounter in this life, if you're in Christ, 
It will not end in death. For we who have repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, while death is coming our way at some point, it will not have the final say. For for us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So next time you find yourself waiting, put all those hasty conclusions to death by remembering that God is using the wait to develop faith in you, to grow your appreciation for His wondrous provision, and to bring glory to Himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the marvelous way in which You orchestrate all things. Time is in Your hands. And we want to say thank You for the many delays and times of waiting that perhaps in the moment we just don't get. We do not understand. But I pray You would use it to grow and develop faith in us, to develop a greater and deeper appreciation and thankfulness in us and cause us to see You glorified through those moments. Lord, thank You for the provision of Your Son. We thank You for Jesus through whom You demonstrate Your love to this world in the hugest way possible. Thank You that You we're pleased to crush Him on our behalf. Thank You, Jesus, for laying down Your life willingly for us. But we rejoice not only in Your death, but also in Your resurrection. We pray that our lives would cry out to others who are in need of repentance and faith in Christ as well. In this time, these moments that You've allotted us, between the promise and the fulfillment, as long as it's still called today, may we be faithful proclaimers of the Gospel, calling out to those who are still dead in their sins, calling out to them with the words of life, telling them about Jesus. Help us in this endeavor, Lord, and we know only You can raise the dead to life, so we ask that You do that by Your grace and for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.